This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville is under siege tonight. For 11 and a half days in the summer of 1974, Fred Gomez Carrasco, the drug-smuggling cartel kingpin from San Antonio, Texas, did the unthinkable. He orchestrated the longest hostage crisis on American soil in history, and he did it behind bars in Texas' oldest and most infamous prison, the Walls Unit in Huntsville. In a sense, Carrasco's entire life was building to this explosive moment. This was just the latest in a series of violent run-ins between Fred Carrasco and lawmen. Authorities in Mexico believe Carrasco was responsible for at least 40 murders, but he drew a life sentence in Texas for attempting to kill a policeman. Now, Fred Carrasco wants out. Before Carrasco got arrested in a wild shootout with nearly 30 cops at the Tejas Motel in San Antonio, he'd been on the lam for more than four long years. That didn't stop Carrasco from raking in millions of dollars smuggling heroin and cocaine into the United States. He'd broken out of prison in Mexico and knocked off rivals left and right, all while running around in wigs and makeup to disguise himself from the authorities. When the cops finally busted Carrasco, they went ahead and arrested his wife, Rosa, too. Rosa was the stand-by-your-man type. She was with him at the motel when he tried to shoot his way out of the police ambush. It was the middle of the night on San Antonio's south side. Carrasco was shot four times before police could bring him down. A police officer held Rosa's hands behind her back. She strained to kiss her husband goodbye. Carrasco was bleeding from his hand, foot, shoulder, and belly. He lay down on a stretcher and was loaded into an ambulance. Four police officers crowded in with him. They weren't about to let Carrasco out of their sights again. Carrasco already had a reputation in the San Antonio barrio. To some people, he was Robin Hood. We talked about uh, about Fred all the time, you know, because uh, he was like a folk hero to, to all of us, to all the people in the community, in the barrio. Henry Rodriguez is a Chicano activist from San Antonio. He dealt with his own kind, you know, they fought each other and this and that, you know, the, the people that they're in, into that kind of business. But to us, he's, he was a great guy, man. He, at least that's, that's how people saw him, you know, he... Even my mom would say things, good things about him. <laughs> Just how big was Fred Carrasco in San Antonio? In the months after he and Rosa got arrested, a popular new song began to play on the jukeboxes in dive bars, saloons, and dance halls all over the city's Mexican-American neighborhoods. The song was called El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco.
I have no idea why the songwriter, Daniel Garces, called him Alfredo Carrasco instead of Fred, or his actual first name, Federico. The Corrido, or ballad, gets the other details right. It describes how police hunted Carrasco down like a mountain lion. It calls him El Capitan of the Mexican Mafia and mentions how it took four bullet wounds to finally bring him to justice. But the song doesn't really glorify Carrasco or his crimes. It doesn't sensationalize things. It simply recounts his story, almost like a TV news report set to a catchy rhythm. And that's kind of what Corridos do. I have always thought of a Corrido as a newspaper. That's Rodolfo Gutierrez, Rudy to his friends. He's the co-owner of San Antonio Music Publishers, one of America's largest independent catalogs of Latino and Tejano music. The majority of people in the Southwest, and I'm talking about uh, Mexican-Americans, were illiterate. So for the most part, the way they got their news was basically gossip. So a corrido is a form of gossip or an oral newspaper where you're giving that story to people in different towns, and that's how the news got around. Rudy's dad, Salome Gutierrez, produced the ballad of Alfredo Carrasco in 1973. Salome would go on to write, record, and distribute a bunch of corridos about Carrasco and his escapades. He was making money, sure, but he was also providing a community service. The people in my father's generation, and even in my generation, there's a lot of groups that only speak Spanish. So the news is very limited. Back in Carrasco's time in the 1970s, something happened. It would be carried on the English-speaking station, but may not appear in the Spanish-language station. For the most part, like the ballad of Fred Gomez Carrasco, and that's basically what they call it in English, ballad. What you're recounting is the events as you heard it or you observed it yourself. So in the case of Fred Gomez Carrasco is what we heard in the news. And as soon as it came out on radio, they would sit down and put those events to music. And then it would be played on the radio. And the citizens here on the way to work, on the way home, would hear the song. And they would be aware of these major events. These days, it's not uncommon to hear Mexican ballads about drug smuggling and related violence. Sometimes the biggest cartel bosses even commission their own songs. Fred Gomez Carrasco was the first major, I guess, Hispanic drug lord that we knew about. This was the beginning of what you would call the narco corrido in South Texas. It wouldn't be the last. Anyway, back to Carrasco. He was hurt bad in the shootout with the cops, but he only spent one night in the hospital. Word got out that Carrasco's men were going to break him loose, so he was almost immediately transferred to the medical wing of the county jail. Here's another crazy twist. Carrasco basically took over the jail. He had his own phone line so he could keep running his drug business from the comfort of his bed. He was also allowed to have his own food. Carrasco always had a taste for the finer things. While the other guys were chowing on beans and enchiladas, Fred Carrasco nibbled on sardines. He kept a private stash of sirloin steaks in the jail fridge, too. When Rosa got out of jail, 
she was allowed back in late at night to visit her husband while the others were sleeping. Just to be clear, we're talking about the jail in San Antonio right now, not the prison in Huntsville. All that came later. The newspapers got hold of the story. They called Carrasco a jailhouse king, like a Middle Eastern potentate. When Thanksgiving rolled around, and this is hard to believe, but Carrasco even celebrated the holiday with a turkey dinner for himself, his family, and a couple of his lawyers in the jail conference room. Supposedly, they were served by none other than jailhouse staff. Here's what the chief jailer, Oscar Warnke, had to say. That guy isn't supposed to run the jail, he told the San Antonio Express newspaper. He's supposed to be treated just like everybody else, but I've simply lost control of him. Carrasco was about to go to trial. He faced a bunch of charges. That's when he did something really drastic. His lawyers told him not to, but Carrasco always went his own way. I will plead guilty to everything if you will let Rosa go. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. That old white-haired judge in Dallas Didn't pay my story no mind Taking me down to Huntsville I'm bringing in a load of time They caught me on a caper that I planned for days And proved everything I'd done I'm on my way to Huntsville But I'm looking for a chance to run my hands on Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. This is Chapter 3, The Mastermind. Long before he became a drug kingpin, Fred Gomez Carrasco had spent a good chunk of his 20s in prison for selling heroin to an undercover agent. Now he was 33 years old and he swore he was never going back, that he'd die before he lost his freedom again. But Carrasco's wife, Rosa, had been charged with a serious offense, assault to murder the police. That night, when the cops surprised Fred and Rosa... During the ambush at the El Tejas Motel, police heard Rosa screaming for her husband to fire away. Kill them! Carrasco absolutely could not stand the thought of his wife Rosa behind bars. That gave prosecutors an advantage. The officials would try to use Rosa to get to Carrasco, because there was no other way to get to Carrasco. That's Greg Barrios, a respected poet, playwright, and journalist who's been reporting on the story of Fred and Rosa Carrasco since the 1970s. Uh, After the Tejas Motel incident, they charged her with resisting arrest and part and parcel of the shootout, which they were going to send him to prison because he shot back at the police officer. And uh, so they said, we're charging Rosa accessory to all of this because she was in the motel. The most interesting part of this is that the next day in the San Antonio Express, the morning edition. There's a picture of Rosa kissing Fred, and they're both bleeding. 
and it's like a picture out of Police Gazette. And you see the bond there, even in a moment of perhaps near death, if you will. And I think that they knew and we could sense that bond between them. And it was, uh, I think, very important that uh, they knew that as well. And though this, so they said, we're charging her as well. If the drug boss copped to the charges and accepted a life sentence, could the mother of his children, his little Rosie, walk free? Carrasco's lawyers tried to talk him out of taking a plea deal. They didn't think the charges against Rosa would stick. But Carrasco was adamant. The prosecutors had spent months building their case against Carrasco. Now they had him right where they wanted. A plea deal would do just fine. Surprisingly, he made a deal with him before the court began. He said, I will plead guilty to everything if you will let Rosa go. And they agreed to that. And uh, he was sentenced. Staring down life in prison, Carrasco was transferred to the oldest penal institution in Texas, the Walls Unit in Huntsville, a sleepy little town in the Piney Woods about 70 miles up the road from Houston. The Walls is the prison's nickname. It's actually just called the Huntsville Unit, but it's surrounded by 30-foot-tall red brick walls, so imposing, no one in their right mind would think about escaping. On the other hand, the Walls Unit is just a medium security facility, probably not the smartest place to lock up a multimillionaire with a history of escaping from prison. Huntsville is where the prison hospital was located, though, and Carrasco still hadn't recovered from those four bullet wounds. In Huntsville, Carrasco hobbled around with the help of a wooden cane, and he was assigned to light duty as a clerk and an orderly for the prison chaplain, an Irish Catholic priest named Joseph O'Brien. Father O'Brien made a lasting impression on folks, according to Jim Willett, a young prison guard at the time. Everybody knew Father O'Brien, very outgoing man, and if you were around at all, he's going to speak to you. He had a he had a super sense of humor. Everybody that worked there knew Father O'Brien. He had balding on top with hair around the side. Uh, he always sat on his priest garb. A uh, very positive person. Uh, didn't seem to make him any difference as far as visiting with you and being cordial to you and laughing and having fun with you. Didn't, didn't seem to depend on whether you were Roman Catholic or not. He just was a top-of-the-line guy. Father O'Brien was born in 1928 in a rough-and-tumble neighborhood behind the Chicago stockyards, not long after his parents and his older brother and sister immigrated to America. Here's Father O'Brien, in his own words, interviewed for the 2004 book, 11 Days in Hell, by William T. Harper. My name is Father Joseph O'Brien. I was chaplain to the Texas Department of Corrections for 18 years in Huntsville. My mother was from Donegal, and my father was from Tipperary. They both came from Ireland, and I was born back in the yards of Chicago. And so it was a solid Irish neighborhood. It was a poor neighborhood, of course, and uh, but very close. People were very close, very religious. O'Brien was a street brawler in his youth, a bare-knuckle fighter. He also cussed like a sailor. But O'Brien was a dedicated altar boy who dreamed of becoming a priest. When he turned 14... O'Brien left home. He moved to San Antonio to study in the seminary. And I knew, you know, living in, in the yards, uh, it was a rough neighborhood. I didn't, th I didn't think I'd ever make it if I stayed there. Gang stuff, not big stuff, but enough to get you in trouble. By the time Fred Carrasco arrived in Huntsville, Texas, Father O'Brien had reached middle age. He'd been a priest for more than two decades. 
Working day in, day out, Father O'Brien was never afraid to mix it up with the inmates. In fact, it was his job to look after the so-called hardest cases. The convicts quickly learned to respect him. It wasn't just any chaplain who'd use his fists to settle a dispute. Call it tough love. They always would give me real tough guys in the office to work with me. I could get to them. They were afraid of me. I've been around the prison so much, and Carrasco was given to me to work, so I'd keep an eye on him. Fred Carrasco spent six months working for Father O'Brien. Spring turned to summer. He swept and mopped the floor. He emptied wastebaskets and took out the trash. Carrasco was a model prisoner. Inside, though, he seethed. Carrasco had been the king of the Mexican mafia. Now, he was a lackey for some priest. So Carrasco hatched a plan. He'd spent years smuggling heroin and cocaine into the United States. Now, he was going to smuggle guns into prison. You have to understand that firearms, pistols, rifles, any kind of deadly weapon were unheard of at the Walls unit. Except for the marksmen who kept watch in the tall towers along the perimeter, no one was allowed to carry guns in prison. Not the guards, not anybody. And it's not like Carrasco would be able to blast his way out of prison. But maybe if he took hostages, he could talk his way out. And so began a clandestine operation that would mystify and bedevil prison investigators and Texas Rangers for months to come. Because Carrasco did indeed manage to get his guns. Oh yes, he did. We're, of course, trying to get together all the facts and circumstances surrounding this takeover of the library by Fred Carrasco Maybe some quite a, we're also, of course, trying to determine how and when the, the weapons got into the walls. Here's Bob Elder, an investigator for the Texas Attorney General's office, interrogating an incarcerated man named Troy Halcom. Troy was serving 135 years for armed robbery in Dallas. He worked with Carrasco at the prison chapel. Your duties over there, Troy. Well, I'm a, a librarian. We've got a pretty good size uh, religious library. Plus, I'm also bookkeeper for Father O'Brien. Well, you wouldn't have known Carrasco on the outside, then, I guess. No, sir. Give us your impression of him. What kind of person was he? What did he do around over there? Well, he was, you know, he was pretty bad, medically pretty bad off. But he mostly uh, cleaned up the offices. You know, medically, he really wasn't capable of doing too much. He couldn't handle a buffer or nothing. You know, they waxed the floor, but he couldn't do it. What would he talk about? It's mostly just about his family. He never said anything about, you know, uh, what he did. It's mostly about his wife and his little girl. What's your opinion of how those guns got in over there? They probably came in through the mail. The mail. Of course. I think they came in and and truck mail, you know, I mean, uh, express or something like that. I uh, went to work in the building five years ago and made the statement to an inmate there that it seems to me that that's an awful lax way for for parcels to come into a penitentiary. It just seemed like to me that there was no precaution taken at all, you know. That's Bill Blanton. He was also an inmate who knew Carrasco in Huntsville. I didn't think there was a mean bone in his body. I mean, just the way he conducted himself in the building. Uh, of course, I knew his, of his past, and I knew he was uh, pretty bad. 
course, he was a Chicano and he didn't have much to say to the to the white guy, but he and I got along pretty well and spoke, you know. To Bill and Troy, two guys who'd been in prison a while, smuggling contraband through the mail just made sense. How would somebody go about setting something like that up? The chaplain's office, your mechanical department, your print shop, your box factory. They've got, you know, inmates that opens the packages. See, and they come straight in. And all they'd had to do just say, send it, you know, to the chapel. See, they usually, when they usually, they bring them in, and Father O'Brien will open them. He was on vacation for two weeks. Yes. That's right. Father O'Brien was out of town, on vacation, when Carrasco was plotting his escape. It only stood to reason that, somehow, Carrasco smuggled those guns through the chapel's office. The prison library was just a short walk away from the chapel. Troy actually spoke to Carrasco right before the chaos began. See, he stayed out on the porch biggest majority of the time, you know, when he wasn't doing anything. And that morning, one of the chaplains had seen him back there. Well, we'd been talking that morning. He came in the office, and we sat there and talked for a pretty good while. We were talking about uh, uh, education programs for... Uh, Spanish-speaking people in the penitentiary. Well, the way they've got it set up now, you know, if a professor from Mexico came here, can't read or write English, he's classified and illiterate. See, and that was what we was talking about. He's dissatisfied with the way the programs they had set up for him. Carrasco was in a testy mood that day. It was like he went to the library every day about 12 o'clock. He started... <coughs> down the stairs where there's a lot of Chicanos and <coughs> blacks that sits on the steps and you can't hardly get by. You know, he was real polite. He asked him, you know, told him excuse me. And they kept sitting there and he took it, took his uh, cane and he punched one of them in the back. It was the first time we ever seen him, you know, get irritated at anybody because he was real easy going, real nice manner. We'll get to the siege really soon. Before we move on, Troy came up with just one more theory about how Carrasco got those guns into the walls unit. Three pistols and 200 rounds of ammo. Get a trusty bring them in. They didn't shake down too good coming through the back gate. A trusty is a prison inmate who holds special privileges. You've probably been in prison a long time and you've always been on good behavior so the guards trust you to come and go, doing little jobs and running errands, even if it means leaving the prison for a while. But a guard could get busy working gate security and maybe become a little too trusting. They didn't shake down too good coming through the back gate. You know, even if they strip you down, it'd still be easy to beat because uh, they in a hurry. Bill wasn't so sure. They are not that lax with the trusty, sir. You could possibly bring me a gun, but I, I believe that uh, personally, I don't think they came in that way either. I don't think that anyone, but Fred knows how those guns come in. I mean, I don't believe he uh, told anyone. Okay, here's what really happened. It's pretty good. There was this trustee named Lawrence Hall who worked as a so-called houseboy inside the home of the assistant director of the Texas prison system. Houseboy, what a gig, right? 
Lawrence was from San Antonio, same as Carrasco. One of Carrasco's guys on the outside, this gangster named Benito Alonso, convinced Lawrence to smuggle marijuana into prison. He was getting paid good money to put little balloons of pot in his shoes and walk right past the guards. That's how Benito Alonso lured him in. Then Alonso raised the stakes. Now you're gonna smuggle guns to our boss, Carrasco. The trustee refused. Here's prison warden Hal Husbands interviewed for 11 days in hell. One of Carrasco's lieutenants that came from San Antonio and came active, actually, actually like he was visiting, but one, but came in and talked to that houseboy. That houseboy, they, they hung around the back of the house a lot. Those visitors on Sunday would walk up there and talk to them or, or just stop and talk to them, just anything to get by with. When the man come in to, for him to bring, told him one of them gun, he told him, hell no, he wasn't gonna get involved with something like that. He said, well, you, you, you can do it this way or you can do it whatever you want to do, but said, what's gonna happen if you don't? He said, we're gonna kill your people in San Antonio. If you, if you don't get take these guns in the cross. Poor Lawrence Hall. The guy was justifiably terrified. The trustee knew that Carrasco meant business. If Hall didn't go along with Carrasco's demands, the death of his entire family was more than a threat. It was a promise. But he had that kind of a reputation of killing people and and uh, just they just at the drop of a hat he'd kill him. He said that he'd put 60 shells in one of his ex-lieutenants like that. Well, those kind of stories got back to him. And, and this is what, whatever he said, it was law in there. You could just tell. One day when Lawrence Hall was left alone at the prison official's house, his blackmailer pulled right up in the driveway. He had a pair of 357 pistols, 138 revolver, and 200 rounds of ammo. Somehow, these guns and bullets had to get from the assistant director's house and into the prison past the correctional officer's standing guard at the back gate. So, Lawrence got hold of a can of peaches, this big, one-gallon can. He carefully removed the label, then cut the can in half. He dumped out the fruit, filled up the can with contraband, taped it back together, and reapplied the label. Presto! One-gallon can of deadly ammo. Lawrence walked the big can over to the prison gate. A guard stopped him. Lawrence held the can in the air while the guard patted him down. Then, he waved him on through. Of course, the ammo was useless without those handguns. So Lawrence came up with an even crazier idea. He bought a five-pound ham from the prison commissary and carried the meat over to the house where he worked. He hollowed out the ham and slipped the 38 Special inside. He threw the ham in a box and told the prison guard it was spoiled. It was being sent back to the prison kitchen. That left the pair of 357 Magnum revolvers. Lawrence found some frozen meat and left it in the sun. The meat began to stink. That meat, he spoiled that meat. It was those people and, and he had the time to spoil it because it's gone, left him over by himself all day long. Just take that meat out of the deep freeze, let it spoil out there in the sun, move it back in that night. A couple of days, he's got some spoil on me. Then Hall wrapped up the guns and put them in a box with the rotting meat piled on top. It sure does stink, the guard said. This stuff that they brought in, 
the way they, they, the house boy brought it in, he, he played it smart. He, he danced gum, sure, played it smart. Now Carrasco had three handguns and 200 rounds of ammo. All he needed was some muscle. It is truly a mystery how he settled on the two guys who would help him try to bust out. The first of Carrasco's two henchmen was Rodolfo Dominguez. Everyone called him Rudy. He was 27 years old and stood 5 feet 6 inches tall and looked like a frightened child in his mugshot. Dominguez had a long rap sheet for violence. Dominguez killed a guy for fooling around with his wife. A very, very bitter, bitter man. That's Father Joseph O'Brien, the prison chaplain. He always snarled, yeah, he always snarled. Uh, he hated me with a vengeance. Oh, and Dominguez was dying from hepatitis C. He had nothing to lose. The second conspirator chosen by Carrasco was this little guy named Ignacio Cuevas. Cuevas was older than the others. His 43rd birthday was right around the corner. But people who knew Cuevas often said he had the mind of a child. He was only five foot two, loved to paint, and had even sold some of his finger paintings in prison. A West Texan from the small desert town of Pecos, Ignacio Cuevas had nine kids. He was doing 45 years for shooting another man in the back of the head during a barroom brawl. Whatever the redeeming qualities of Ignacio Cuevas and Rudy Dominguez, they didn't exactly impress the people who knew them best. But hey, they were ready and willing, and that's what Carrasco needed. I think that Fred could fix two better guys than Dominguez and Cuevas. Dominguez was a wild, uh, he's probably a gun-happy guy. But Cuevas, apparently, I wouldn't have thought he would have done anything, just looked at him, you know. And he didn't really, I mean, it turned out that you, but uh, had there been any talk, I'm sure that he could have found uh, a couple of guys more suited for that particular kind of thing than, than he picked. There was just one problem, a big problem. The FBI got wind of Carrasco's scheme. Through one of their informants, federal agents in San Antonio learned that Carrasco was plotting his escape. The FBI went so far as to tip off the director of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. The director's name was Jim Estelle. Estelle pulled Carrasco into his office. He asked him, point blank, if the rumor from the FBI was true. Carrasco swore he only wanted to serve his time peacefully. He harbored no plans to escape and was committed to being a model prisoner. Estelle bought it. He let Carrasco go. No solitary confinement, no additional security, nothing. That decision would lead to one of the greatest security failures in the history of the Texas penal system. Here's Warden Hal Husbands again on the state of prison security in Huntsville. And, well, just listen. The reason it failed was because of the fear that he had among the Mexicans. It was only Mexicans that knew this. If it had been any white men involved in the thing at all, we'd have probably known about it. But he had such such power over these Mexicans that it, it, it couldn't come out. None of them ever knew it. And they made it a point to. That's how they work. They're a clannish bunch. And they made it a point that it wasn't going to work. And, and it sure didn't work. We didn't have, well, we had heard that he was going to try to escape. You know, we heard all that stuff. But that you hear that about a lot of people. Eh, maybe. But Troy Holcomb actually worked with Carrasco in the prison chapel. And he said Carrasco fooled everybody. 
really, it surprised me, you know, because he, I think he faked us all out of doing it, you know, because he never gave any indication. You know, he was always assuming that he was going to eventually get out through his lawyers. After the break, and so it begins. And I said, what happened? He said he just shot a guard in the library. For days leading up to July 24, 1974, when the Huntsville prison siege began, the three conspirators, Rudy Dominguez, Ignacio Cuevas, and Fred Gomez Carrasco, paid several visits to the prison library. They pretended to sit around and read newspapers. Really, they were casing the joint. The library was the perfect setting to stage an insurrection. A fortress of brick, no windows and just one door. One way in, one way out. And plenty of defenseless civilians to take hostage. The prison bell sounded at 1 p.m. And saw someone standing in the library with a pistol in his hand pointed straight up at the ceiling. And then I became aware of something had occurred and almost simultaneously, three shots rang out. That's Dr. Glennon Johnson, the Director of Education and Recreation at the prison. You might remember him from the first episode. And almost simultaneously, three shots rang out. Carrasco took aim through the glass front doors and shot at two guards who were running up the ramp that led to the library. He got one of the guards in the foot and barely missed the other. Then Carrasco and his men rounded up their hostages, nearly a dozen civilians and about 70 prisoners. Only moments before, the incarcerated men had been innocently taking classes, reading, or doing research in the law library. With Dominguez's help, Carrasco chained the glass door. Then he barricaded it with a heavy filing cabinet. Carrasco proceeded to get on the phone. The phone rang it several times, and he'd ask somebody to, to answer it, and most of the time he'd ask Miss Pollard to answer it. Mrs. Pollard was Novella Pollard, the assistant principal of the prison school. We heard from her in the first episode, too. And I heard someone say, don't move or I'll shoot you. So then I broke and ran to the library's office. And so then Mr. Robinson came to the window of the librarian's office, and he says, you have to come out. He knows you're in here, and you have to come out. With Novella Pollard operating the phone line on Carrasco's behalf, she called down to Warden Husband's office and passed along his first demand. Carrasco wanted an old friend, a soft-spoken guy named David Robles, sent up to the library. Robles was in the prison hospital at the time, recovering from surgery. Yeah, we were pretty close, I would say. Back in the 60s, Robles and Carrasco hit it off when both were incarcerated in federal prison. Carrasco was doing time for selling heroin to an undercover agent. Robles was locked up for selling marijuana. He always had a real nice personality, you know, uh, someone that had so much ambitious to make money, you know. You know, you, you could tell that he'd be always dealing in, uh, in so many things, you know, making a dollar here, a dollar there, you know. I always thought that he would make money out there in the streets, you know, but I thought legitimately, you know. When I first entered the library, uh, I went and shook his hand, you know, and uh, I was glad to see him and he was glad to see me. 
And uh, he told me uh, if I would join him. I told him that no, and I, and I explained my reason why not. And uh, he wasn't mad about it or anything. He said that uh, I was free to come back to the hospital if I wanted to. And I chose to go back to the hospital. But Robles didn't accept the offer. He was fighting for a cause that went beyond himself. I'm connected with people that are trying to bring change to TTC. And I didn't want to uh, lose everything that we have already gained, you know. And I didn't want to uh, hinder in any way uh, what we're doing. He, he didn't get mad at all on us. He, he just... Uh, no, he just thought that I wanted to go because I was doing a life sentence, and he knew I didn't have no good time. He knew I was in third class by making inquiries, you know. And he thought that I might wanted to join. The old friends shook hands once more and never saw each other again. Carrasco still had all those civilian and inmate hostages to contend with. He got warden husbands on the phone. When he talked to me, that first time, and I didn't. We didn't talk long, like half a minute on the phone, because we didn't have a. Yeah, we didn't have a hell of a lot to say. He told me what he wanted. And he wanted sixteen pair of handcuffs and a, and, a, and a TV, and for that he'd give me fifty inmates. Well, that ain't no bad trade. Then uh, Carrasco began to tell us and the, all of this hostages then that he was making certain demands and that if they were not met uh, then he just felt sorry for us and that wasn't too difficult to interpret what he had in mind at that point and then uh, he uh, he sent for father o'brien said send father o'brien up without his frock and handcuffed father joseph o'brien the irish catholic prison chaplain had been out of town he was visiting his family in Chicago. It was his first day back from vacation. Father O'Brien knew Carrasco better than any of the guards at the Walls Unit Prison. I was in the officer classification, and uh, one of the secretaries asked me how to spell Carrasco. And I said, what happened? He said, he just shot a guard in the library. So I ran up there. And uh, before I got there, and that's with the warden. Warden Hal Husbands rushed to meet Father O'Brien outside the office. He was coming up the sidewalk right before he got the stairs when I, when I first met him and, and told him and what had happened. He said, yes, I'll go up there. And I said, Father, you don't have to. He said, I know it, but I will. Father O'Brien had no way of knowing what lay in store for him if he confronted Carrasco, but he didn't hesitate. To help. And uh, shortly thereafter, Father O'Brien came up that way, handcuffed and without his frock. And they, they said greetings, and then uh, Carrasco proceeded to tell Father O'Brien what the score was and what he intended to do. And I was out of earshot, so I, I didn't hear their conversation, but I could see what was going on. Talk to Fred. And, uh, I said, This isn't for grievances, is it? He said, of course, this is a, an escape. 
So then he wants to negotiate the blankets. And he was in for a siege. He was in for a long haul. Carrasco was not a Catholic. He was actually an atheist, but he respected O'Brien and trusted him. Then Father O'Brien was on the phone, and then Carrasco did not want to talk to anybody else then. He wanted Father O'Brien to do all the talking. With Father O'Brien acting as the go-between, Warden Husband sent up blankets, a TV, and 15 pairs of handcuffs, which Carrasco used to restrain the civilian hostages. He also had to do something about all those inmate hostages. Even with their guns, there was no way three guys could control that many people against their will. Here's Dr. Johnson again. And he said to the inmates then, they were sitting on, in the library section, he said, I want five of you volunteers to stay here and the rest of you can go. Well, for a moment or two, there were no volunteers. And then some hands went up. And then he says, well, we'll let the rest of the inmates go then, but you can go five at a time. He says, we have no beef with you all. It's between us and the law. This is Carrasco talking at this time. And he proceeded to do that, to let those inmates out five at a time. One of the prisoners who raised his hand to stay was Steve Robertson. He's the guy who knew Carrasco from before the siege. Robertson happened to be sitting in the law library that day because he wanted to file a formal complaint for being kept in solitary confinement. I'm involved with prison reform, and they got me classified as an instigator. I got agitated. I don't know. What was your purpose in volunteering? I don't know. <clears throat> it's really hard to say. I guess more out of curiosity than anything else. I have never, I never been a part of nothing like that, and I knew. Something was going to happen. I guess just curiosity more than anything. I asked him if I could stay. He said he wanted people he could trust up there. And I, he really didn't know me that well to trust me. But he, he said he told me to go ahead and stay. If the other hostages were scared, Robertson was enjoying himself. Carrasco seemed calm and collected. But his accomplice, Rudy Dominguez, was on edge. It was Dominguez's job to keep watch over the civilians. During this time then, Dominguez was sitting within 15 feet, I guess, of the, of the 10 of us with his pistol. Uh, one of the ladies had asked Carrasco, would you please have you ask him to not point it at us then? He quit swinging it and he stuck it in the air, but he still had the hammer back at, on the orders of Carrasco. And then Father O'Brien stayed a while and went down, went back down. And at a, at a later time, he came back up, and each time, of course, he insisted that Father O'Brien be handcuffed. And they would talk a while at the, at the desk, and then he sent Father O'Brien over to sit with us for a while. Then he decided to move us. During this 30 or 40-minute interval, he moved us from one corner of the library over to what we call the, what's the writ room. He left us there about 30 minutes, and he moved us in another corner. So we had been in three different positions in, in the library part by the, at this time. The afternoon rolled into evening. All this time, Father O'Brien had been running errands back and forth from the warden's office to the prison library, mostly to fetch items requested by Carrasco. But Father O'Brien had been on the inside. He'd seen too much. Carrasco gave the priest a choice. 
Empty let him out and he, and he told him he could come back, but said, if you come back now, you can't leave anymore. And Father, I said, Father O'Brien, you don't have to go, you don't need to go back to me. Yes, I do too. I told those women I was coming back up there and I'm going to go back. I said, well, I sure need to see you go back. Knowing what that thing was liable to do, the potential. But he was a, he was some lot of stability up there for those people in a, and I know needed very badly by the by, by the women. Father O'Brien had elected to stay. The balding, 46-year-old chaplain took his place among the hostages. It would nearly cost him his life. Father Joseph O'Brien, who became a voluntary hostage, was shot through the back. Father O'Brien rolled off shouting, he's alive, he's alive. As he rolled off, two shots were fired in rapid succession. Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsful, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas. Have questions? Contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory.
se escapó de mero Guadalajara y desde entonces la ley lo buscaba y lo buscaba la ley daba recompensa de cinco mil al contado por tal de que alguien dijera en dónde estaba Carrasco la ley acusa a Carrasco de muchas muertes en Texas y en México de otras tantas allí por esas fronteras ya me despido cantando y esta historia no termina la ley vigila a Carrasco como cabeza cocida la ley aquí en San Antonio la quiero felicitar pusieron su inteligencia para poderlo agarrar The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.